to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. As every Astros fan knows, back in 2014, Sports Illustrated put George Springer on their cover. The headline, of course, your 2017 World Series champs. The author of the story in SI, Ben Ryder, joins me on the line to talk about his new book, Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. And Ben, it's good to have the SI soothsayer and those Astros Domus on the show. <laughs> well, you know, Bob Lee on ESPN called me Astro Domus, which I thought was, <laughs> thought was a pretty good one. Um, look, uh, if you make enough predictions, you have to be right sometime, although this one was this one was pretty special for sure. Well, let me have you first start off by telling the story about Springer getting on the cover because your colleague, Alan Shipneck, uh, wrote the story, <laughs> Michelle Wee's feature that was the likely cover story. And I love hearing you explain his reaction when your editors made the decision to put Springer on there. <laughs> right. Well, look, when I went down to Houston in June of 2014 to uh, write this story, to report this story, it was certainly not supposed to be a cover at all. You know, we didn't even know what it would be, if it would be positive, you know, if it would be skeptical. Uh, just wanted to go in there with an open mind and see what the most horrible baseball team in 50 years was actually up to. I certainly thought they were up to something interesting, as I'm sure we'll discuss. So I wrote a 5,000-word cover story, filed it to the magazine. Look, it's a busy time on the sports schedule for SI. You have the Stanley Cup Finals going on, the NBA Finals, the World Cup that year. Um, and then you also had Michelle Wee, finally, after like 10 years of trying, breaking through to come through on her phenom status and win the Women's U.S. Open at Pinehurst Number 2. So my colleague, Alan Shipnuck, who'd been covering her for 10 years, stayed up all night after that, writing this terrific feature on Michelle Wee and fully expected that it would be on the cover, as he should have. You know, he went to his mailbox out in California that morning. I guess it would probably be a Wednesday morning, reached in and pulled it out and could not believe what he saw. In fact, he would later write, quote, Imagine my utter shock and despair to find that waiting for me instead was the garish uniform of the crappiest team in baseball. So he actually went on Twitter and started blasting our editor-in-chief who'd made this decision, Chris Stone. My at the Michelle Wee features in this week's SI, the one with the uh, last place Astros on the cover, hashtag kill me now, hashtag please. <laughs> that, was, that was his reaction. You know, when this thing actually came true, I think he might have admitted that he might have been wrong, but he's actually still pretty sore about it. Yeah, I'm fine with everything except uh, Garish cover. I mean, Garish uniform. Uh, that 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 that's the only thing I had the problem with what with what he said. <laughs> I agree. These are like you know, it's of course the rainbow what tequila sunrise uniforms that everybody knows. These are like among the most classic uniforms in sports. So he's he's right there, but he certainly was not wrong about the team's crappiness at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, before we get into some of the details of the book, I, I hear this general perception from more the national media that the Astros and Luno turn this around by tanking. Uh, to me, it's just flat-out bogus because Luno takes over after they had won 56 games in 2011, the worst record in baseball. Their farm system was a disaster. It wasn't a good team on the field. Now, you study this as much as any outsider. Am I under misunderstanding what the definition of tanking is? I think probably, right? Like tanking is intentionally getting bad or getting worse in order to get high draft picks. The Astros are already terrible. 
as you pointed out. I mean, Jeff Luna will tell you that he didn't see any other way to do it logically, at least any other way that would not take another decade of futility. Their goal was to get better as fast as possible, and that meant not wasting money on teams that were going to lose anyway. You know, he always said, nobody cares if we lose 97 games or 104 games in 2013 if we win the world championship in 2017. And that's exactly what happened. But you're right, his hand was forced just by the really decrepit state of the organization when he got there. Nothing in the big leagues. You know, Carlos Lee was aging. J.A. Happ wasn't good again. Not much of value that you could quickly flip into future help. And the minor leagues was essentially barren. You know, it was a couple years earlier, ranked the worst in baseball. Yeah, they had George Springer in there, but he was not the sure thing that people think he was back then. He was striking out like an unbelievable amount of times in single A. Uh, he was striking out more than Adam Dunn was striking out in the big leagues. That's not typically the profile of a future star. Altuve, you know, looked like a nice slap-hitting second baseman. Dallas Keuchel, maybe a fringy fifth starter. Uh, that was about it. So there was really no other way forward. So I do agree that all these accusations that they went about this cynically were probably misplaced. Maybe the quintessential example of what makes Jeff Luno special is Colin McHugh. It's like the Astros people can do one of these queer eye for the baseball guy makeovers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was McHugh's background and what did Luno and his staff see that the rest of baseball didn't? Right. Uh, McHugh had, you know, no pro no profile at all. He came from a small college uh, called Barry College. He'd had cups of coffee with the Mets and the Rockies. I think his ERA was over eight in his big league stints. But, you know, this was one of the more analytically driven decisions that they made. They kind of looked into his pitch selection uh, and they realized that he had a really good breaking ball and he wasn't throwing it enough. So they basically figured, and it's more complicated than this, but if we get this guy to throw his breaking ball more and more effectively, we might have a very effective pitcher on our hands. So they acquired him for basically nothing, and that's exactly what they got, as he continues to be this day as one of the better relievers, really, in baseball. And it was kind of like a prototype for the efforts they would later make with other pitchers, specifically Charlie Morton last year and Garrett Cole this year. Kind of seeing what you got and figuring out how to help you best exploit it. While McHugh represents the perfect analytic success, their most frustrating missed opportunity, uh, maybe even more so than Brady Aiken and that catastrophe, catastrophe was J.D. Martinez. Mm -hmm. uh, Astros diehards know what happened after they released him, Ben, but you tell this, I would call it sort of a serendipitous story about how Astros hitting coach John Maley started a chain of events that turned his career around. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. I mean, as I write in the book, and I think people have an idea, the Aiken thing I wouldn't consider to be a disaster at all. It was certainly a difficult decision, and it was embarrassing. But if they had not, not had they not failed to sign Brady Aiken, they would not have Alex Bregman right now. So I think probably every Astros fan and the Astros themselves would have gone down that path again. J.D. Martinez was different. There's no silver lining here. This was a screw-up probably their biggest screw-up of their entire run. Uh, Martinez, as everybody knows, was in the big leagues for a couple years. He was okay, certainly below average, didn't have a lot of power, couldn't run well, didn't play defense, a fringe guy. Not probably a guy that any analytics, uh, or any analysis, I should say, would suggest would be a big contributor going forward. 
Um, and he knew this, and he had that conversation with John Maley, who said basically, like, you need to change something, man, if you're going to like stick around. So he decided to change something. Now, it's hard for somebody who's made the big leagues and who's been doing things his whole life the same way to do that. But that's what J.D. Martinez did. He went out to California and worked with these hitting gurus, Craig Wallenbrock and Robert Von Skoyak, who had previously helped uh, Ryan Braun become what he'd become, and Jason Castro turned from kind of a light-hitting catcher into an all-star um, and completely overhauled his swing, giving it an uppercut, uh, you know, just changing his weight load, changing everything about it. He went down to Venezuela for Winter League that offseason to put it in action, and he was crushing the ball. And he came back to spring training. He sat down with Jeff Luno and Bo Porter, the manager, and he said, guys, like, I've changed. Like, I swear, it feels great. Just give me a chance this spring to show you what I can do now. I'm different. And they said they would. They didn't. He got 18 at-bats that spring, and then they cut him. A couple days later, he's signed by the Tigers. He comes back in a minor league game against the Astros in Kissimmee, hits three bombs in a single game. Jeff Luno's in the bleachers. He told me, he's sitting there, he's like, Oh, my God, what did I just do? And what they did was they cut exactly the type of player they're looking for, which is a cheap superstar. Um, he continues to be, you know, a top five hitter in the game today. A lot of teams, I don't know, they might have kind of made excuses for this. Uh, you know, they might have come up with all sorts of reasons why it wasn't their fault. This is one part of the Astros process. They learned from this. They decided that going forward, if a guy came in in spring training, said he made changes, they would give him a chance to show it. And they also invested in some technology that can actually track bat speed and angle and things like that to show them if those changes are real. Yeah, the quote you had from Martinez, I thought basically typified what everybody thought about the Astros and, and this whole idea of, uh, of analytics. Uh, he says they had all this data, all these nerds and geeks. And I think they forgot that at the end of the day, everybody is still human and a human can adapt and a human can adjust and and I mean, I guess that's exactly what the Astros proved uh, wasn't you know that wasn't what they were all about when they when they just won the World Series. Right, they certainly uh, advanced from 2014, and it is interesting that you know JD Martinez is still pissed off about this. Like I you know I talked to him <laughs> after he signed 110 million dollar contract with the Red Sox. You know made his fortune. He'd been an All Star superstar level hitter and. He's still upset with what happened at the end of his tenure in Houston, which I thought was pretty interesting. I, I'm sure Jeff's pretty upset, too. <laughs> he is. I mean, to Jeff's credit, look, I mean, he, 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 he hugged J.D. Martinez the first time he saw him when he came back as a member of the Tigers. He said he wishes the best for him. Um, and I think that he genuinely does, uh, maybe in part because it kind of showed him a way that they could significantly improve their process. Well, I've been anxiously waiting to ask you about who I call the Robin to Jeff Luno's Batman. Uh, All right. But before I get to him, I need to just take a quick sec to talk about HBOT America. Many of you have heard about the benefits of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Athletes like LeBron James, Tiger Woods use it for recovery. And you can do it here in Houston without buying your own hyperbaric chamber. Before I tell you how you can save a bunch of money by listening to us, let me explain how it works. It uses pure oxygen under a, hyper, under a higher atmospheric pressure to help the blood saturate and absorb more oxygen into the tissues. It promotes reduction in, infl in inflammation, accelerates recovery time, increases blood flow, and studies show it helps with concussions and even cognitive function um, of the brain. If you'd like to see the effects, try it yourself. Call HBOT America. 
832-986-5144. Go to hbotamerica.com for more info. That's hbotamerica.com. And hey, I've been a regular at their location over on Kirby by NRG Stadium. The people over there are awesome. And if you mention Houston Sports Talk, you get a 25% discount on any of their services. Or you can go to the website and use the promo code HST25. Of course, Houston Sports Talk, 25%. Just remember it that way. In case you forget, look for the promo code in the description of this podcast. All right, Ben, my favorite character in your book is Astro's special assistant to the GM, Sigmai Dell. And, and I say character because he's somebody who a screenwriter would create, but nobody would believe is real. And Sig basically anchors your story. Tell people about his background and who he is. Right. Well, Sig is essentially, in some ways, both the brains and the heart of Astro Ball. Uh, this is a, someone who is obviously a very intelligent guy. But when he was in college in the 1980s, he worked as a blackjack dealer in Lake Tahoe, at the worst casino in Lake Tahoe, the one that all the drunks would go to because it was the only one they're allowed to get into. Um, that experience taught him a lot about, you know, probability and about human gut and how human gut has value, but can also lead you astray when it starts to start suggesting based on no real empirical evidence that you should start playing blackjack against the book. He went on to become uh, a NASA rocket scientist. He launched satellite for Lockheed Martin. Uh, this is a smart guy, but all along his overriding passion was for baseball. But of course, until Moneyball came out, there was no place in the game for somebody like this. No place at all. Once that came out, that changed. Jeff Luno, who was also a baseball outsider, was hired to run the scouting department for the St. Louis Cardinals. He essentially picked Sig's package that he had been sending around out of a slush pile, brought him on to run his data department. Uh, they quickly turned a Cardinals draft operation that had really been lagging for many years into the best there was in the game in the 2000s. Um, and then he brought him along to Houston to, to run data for him. Now, the key insight, I think, and one of the key insights to the book and something that both Sig and Jeff understand well is that putting together a winning baseball team or a successful organization is not just about exploiting the numbers. You know, that the pendulum had swung very far towards the analytics uh, ever since Moneyball came out in 2003. The next evolution is to bring back an overlooked source of predictive information. Humans, human gut, human instinct, human experience, things that scouts can see with all their experience that the numbers can't quantify. So their stroke of genius was really to fold this source of information back in with the analytics to really get the best out of both man and machine instead of prioritizing machine over man. Uh, that's kind of a major theme of the book and it plays out in all sorts of ways as I dig in to really like nine of the key decisions the Astros made. Not all of them good ones, like the one to cut J.D. Martinez, but that brought them from laughing stock to where they are now. Yeah, there's there's a ton more about Sig that I, that's a great reason why people should read this book because uh, there's a lot more to to him and what he's about. Uh, you paint this extraordinary mural detailing every second of the Justin Verlander acquisition. The story alone is worth buying it, uh, Astro Ball. <laughs> the, the two details that brought the biggest smiles to my face were, number one, the day of the deal. Luno's got to speak to his nephew's little league team, which happened <laughs> to be on the field where they shot the original Bad News Bears. Now, I'm sure the irony isn't lost on you or anybody that the Astros were the Bad News Bears when he took over. <laughs> That's right. 
And also the Bad News Bears fans will remember that in the sequel, they won the big game in the Astrodome. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's pretty cool about it. And then number two, which this was straight out of like a 1940s Capra movie, was a scene where Justin Verlander and Kate Upton were racing down the stairs of their Detroit high-rise in their pajamas. How in the world did we get there? Because I love this. Right. Well, you know, as I was writing this chapter, I wasn't thinking about the Bad News Bears so much as the ending sequence of another movie, which is Goodfellas. You remember when Ray Liotta, as Henry Hill, is like driving around frantically as like helicopters are hovering over him? And the music's getting louder and louder. And there's like <laughs> yeah. this, this deep like bass line going on. That's what I was thinking uh, as I wrote this kind of TikTok of how the Astros got to the place where they had two seconds left for Justin Verlander to sign his waiving of his no trade clause and go to Houston. Because that's when it happened. It happened at 11.59 and 58 seconds Eastern. And the deadline was midnight. So that's how close they came to having this fall through. And I mean, as we saw what happened next, that's kind of how close that they came to perhaps not having won this championship. Because it is hard to imagine that they would have uh, if they hadn't made this trade for Verlander. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of one of these things where you talk to all the principals involved for a long time, uh, specifically Luna and, and Verlander and Alavila on the Tiger side. And you kind of tell this narrative almost minute by minute uh, that really seems to have changed everything. And, and the story is that, you know, they're basically waiting uh, or, or they're, you know, they've got to get to the Detroit executive that uh, has the paperwork on the no trade clause because they got to sign off. That's on that. right. That's right. Yeah. Avila, Avila, the GM of the Tigers, um, in the eventuality or in the case that uh, they did come to terms with the Astros on a trade, he knew that Verlander had to sign off on it. So he actually, you know, talk about Goodfellas. He had two of his executives stake out Verlander's apartment building just sitting outside in their car with the necessary documents in their hands so that if the trigger was pulled, they could immediately rush it in there, get Verlander's signature. And I think they actually took an iPhone photo of the of the document and sent it into the Major League Baseball offices. And the reason they took the stairs was because they were scared that the elevator wasn't going to work. <laughs> That's right. Can you imagine if like a faulty elevator somewhere in Detroit had scuffled this Justin Verlander trade, that would have been, you know, it, it's really uh, everything had to certainly fall into line to get this to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's an unbelievable. Uh, do you think Luno makes the Verlander deal if, uh, as you say in Astro Ball, Jim Crane didn't push him because the city was underwater, basically? I don't think you can say that any one factor pushed him to make this deal or not i guess maybe you could say like if this had not happened then the deal would not have happened but it was really a combination of things first of all the verlander deal is a great example of how the astros have combined human gut with analytics because the analytics are kind of inconclusive on verlander first of all he didn't have a very good first half at all although their analytics department had picked up on some changes he'd made in the previous month to suggest maybe he was recapturing his own magic second of all I mean, no just strictly algorithmic analysis would suggest that it's wise for any team to sacrifice like 18 controllable years of three very good prospects for two years of a 35-year-old pitcher who is making, you know, $26 million a year, which is knocked down to 20. 
Uh, but there were other factors that they were considering. One was certainly Hurricane Harvey, and Jim Crane said, look, we didn't do anything really at the regular trade deadline. This city needs just some reason for optimism, however minor uh, this might be, in the context of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, and two, the team was just really playing horribly in August. Remember, Dallas Keuchel had come out after the trade deadline and said he's disappointed. They didn't do anything to you know, embrace this potential championship run that they were doing, that they had here. Then Correa got hurt. Uh, they had a losing record in August. So, yeah, those are the sort of human factors that uh, combined with the analytics to lead to Luno's ultimate call. You know, I've, I've covered this team for the last, you know, few years, but, you know, you know, followed my whole life. I'm, I'm a native Houstonian and you have uh, lots of details in here that, you know, we, Astros fans know, but you have so many that uh, was a surprise to me. And, and I think one of the big ones was what Carlos Beltran did for Yuli Gurriel on the day of the World Series that that whole during that game as it was going on, uh, you know, as, as he got the, the trouble that everybody knows about. Uh, with the what happened with you, Darvish, and everything like that. Ex- explain some of the things that Beltran did, because, you know, to me, that was a real revelation. First of all, I think the reason that Beltran was on the team at all reveals something about their process. Like, yes, they signed him because they thought he would still hit home runs. He had a very good year with the Yankees and the Rangers. And in that regard, he was actually probably a disappointment, or certainly was a disappointment last year when it became clear that, you know, at 40, even Carlos Beltran was winding down. But they also made him the highest paid player on the team at the beginning of the year last year for another reason, which is that they know all the numbers. They know how to parse them and harness them. But they're smart enough to understand that just because the numbers can't quantify something, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and that it's not a factor in winning. Specifically, the idea of having that veteran presence in the clubhouse who can establish leadership and team chemistry in all sorts of different ways. And I really delve into those uh, in the book, uh, in in pretty concrete type of way, all the different things he did for different people behind the scenes. The story you're talking about in the World Series specifically uh, did come after, as everybody saw in Game Three, when Yuli Gurriel made uh, that internationally televised uh, questionable gesture related to you, Darvish, um, and everybody saw this thing started to blow up during the game. Carlos Beltran wasn't playing. You know, he didn't have a hit in the World Series. But it was really him who helped to tamp down those fires behind the scene. First, he went to Yuli Gurriel, who doesn't speak English really, um, explained what happened, why people were upset, helped him strategize, you know, what he should say to explain that if he really wasn't trying to be offensive, that 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 was first of all, to explain that it was not his intention to be offensive. And then he also reached out to his former teammate in Texas, you Darvish explained the same thing, saying Yuli's a good guy. He didn't mean it. it. You know, he didn't really understand what the gesture meant. Um, he was having trouble explaining verbally that he was happy he hit a home run off of him. So he just kind of did that knee jerk. Um, this is something that really could have blown up going forward and been a major distraction to the Astros. But look, I mean, it died down pretty fast. And that has a lot to do with Carlos Beltran's almost statesmanship type efforts. Last guy I want to really ask you about is George Springer because, you know, he's the one on the cover. He wins the World Series MVP. And the thing about George Springer is, you know, I've been covering sports for 27 years. I've been in tons of locker rooms, professional, college, whatever. And George, to me, is my favorite guy that I've ever been around. 
uh, in sports. He, he's one of the most unique guys and, and really special. And, and Ben, I, I'm sure you've had a chance to to be around George. I think the thing that really d- defined him for me, the, the moment that I realized that, hey, this guy is just really different is, you know, uh, we all know about you know what he's overcome with with stuttering and and stuff like that, but it, it's it's somebody that you can go up to in the locker room and at any time and you can ask him for an interview and he always does it even though of what he's gone through. But the moment that I think about is I, I'm there in the locker room. It was a maybe a nine thirty ten o'clock in the morning in the clubhouse on a Sunday morning waiting for the Astros game and I'm I'm waiting to get some interviews and there was maybe. A handful of people in in the locker room. I would say maybe only two or three. And Will Harris was was one of the guys. And all of a sudden, walking into the locker room, singing like a top forty song or something, <laughs> was George Springer with a smile on his face. And he didn't. It wasn't like he walked into the locker room and realized people were there and then started singing. No, he was singing in full throat when he walked into the locker room. <laughs> you know, it's that the joy that he brings, and it and there was. There's just something about it. And I looked over at Will Harris and Will Harris had a big smile on his face. And to me, that was kind of the definition of George Springer right there. I mean, he just kind of bring joy, brings joy when he walks into the room. And, and he's such a guy for the chemistry of the Astros over the last few years. What is your thought on just kind of being around George Springer and getting to know him? Yeah, I think you've, you've summed him up perfectly. I mean, he kept saying, right, as I write in the book, even after he had like an absolutely horrible ALCS, and then a horrible game one of the World Series. You know, he he didn't get down on himself. He he said he was singing in the batting cage before game two. You know, I believe I can hit kind of like keeping yeah. uh, R. Kelly, right? <laughs> or copying copy R. Kelly. Yeah. Um, so, look, I mean, yes, he does rub off on everybody in the clubhouse, his positivity. But this is certainly a characteristic that the Astros look for. You know, it's not a coincidence that everybody's like, oh, this team, the guys seem like they have such good character. You know, the chemistry is so strong. They're so relentless. This is one of those things that they look for. They kind of characterize it as a growth mindset, like a positive outlook, a certain level of intelligence. And actually a key factor that they look for is when they draft players are their grades in school. Because I think that that suggests an ability to learn, to adapt, um, a, a grittiness, so, yeah, I mean, that's one of those ways in which they look deeper than the performance numbers down to the people who are going to do the performing, um, understanding that guys like George Springer, who, as I said, was it was not particularly promising the minors. He had tools, but he was just playing completely out of control to see that a guy like that has it within himself to get better, that Altuve has it in himself to get much better, that Correa can come into the big leagues at the age of 20 and immediately establish himself as the best shortstop in baseball. And I really think that these concepts, the idea of using data, not overlooking it, because you can't win in any industry these days if you do, but combining it with the human factor is not just a way to find success in baseball, but really in all industries. It's very easy for a lot of industries, you know, healthcare, politics, criminal justice, to just suggest or believe that the numbers are going to describe everything you need to know. Um, that's just not true. And I think the Astros have provided a model, not just for how to win in modern baseball, but how to succeed in, you know, really modern life. When did you know you were going to write this book? I'm I'm fascinated by this because you had this incredible story, like building up all the way up into the World Series. 
I mean, honestly, I, I started to think there might be a book in this when I was sitting in their pre-draft meeting in 2014. Just like what these guys are saying is not something I've heard before. I think it's very innovative. Um, of course, if they go on like a 10-year losing streak, nobody's going to care what they're doing. Uh, but I had in the back of my mind, I reported it, you know, I reported on the Astros pretty thoroughly over the next four years. You know, I called my agent with this idea. It was from the press box of Yankee Stadium before game three of the ALCS when the Astros had jumped out to 2 nothing. I said, you know, I think there might be a, about a 35% chance that they'll actually win this thing. But, and they probably have to win the thing to make it a really viable project. But if they do, uh, here's what I want to do. And he was all in on it. And then it was just following along the next two weeks to see if they were going to do it. And then, you know, when Altuve threw to Gurriel for the final out on November 1st, uh, it was really time to go. Well, I think everybody knows where they can where they can find the book. But if there's anything else you want to tell them about getting the book or whatever, and I also just have to know if your if your name was Ben Policeman, would you have had a different profession? <laughs> probably, I don't know. <laughs> I probably would have. Um, so yeah, look, I mean, you can buy it at any bookstore, uh, Amazon, iBooks, whatever. I'm also doing a an event in Austin. On Monday, that's July 30th at 7 p.m. at Book People. If you want to come out and get your book signed and meet me, um, and you know maybe ask me some questions, I'd love to see anybody who's listening. Yeah, I'm real frustrated because I just I was looking and I didn't even realize that you had been in Houston and and you did a book signing and it was on my birthday. It was on my birthday. <laughs> well, well, I hope you I hope you spent it in a more fun way than like listening to me talk about talk about the book. But uh, yeah, look, I mean, Houston has just been unbelievable to me personally, like the enthusiasm for the story and for the book. Um, people bought me a lot of beers, I should say, when I was down there. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate that. I have no doubt that I'll be back uh, very soon to, to see folks in Houston as well. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. And I can't tell you how much I love this, this book and people should get it, of course. Thanks, man. Appreciate it, Robert. Here's a ground ball right side. Could do it. The Houston Astros are world champions for the first time in franchise history. Thanks again for listening. And if you're new to the show, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, or the TuneIn app. You can keep up with this show and my daily Locked On Texans podcast on Twitter and Facebook or by going to HoustonSportsTalk.net or LockedOnTexans.com.